The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a man of noble heart stands up to a genocidal regime. Humanity tries to rebuild in the wake of a global catastrophe and a search and rescue mission gone horribly wrong. Plus a wide ranging discussion on influences, literary and otherwise, with Tim Powers, DJ Butler, and Christopher Rocchio. And we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I'm Bain Consulting Editor David F. Shirod, sitting in for your regular host, Tony Daniel. Today, we bring you my conversation with Tim Powers, DJ Butler, and Christopher Rocchio about their influences, literary and otherwise. It was a far-ranging discussion that I think will interest writers and readers alike as we delve into the way that authors, and consequently the books that they write, are formed. But first, the news. The March EARCs are in. Now, for those of you who don't know, EARCs are small nocturnal marsupials. First discovered by Sir John Frankenhammer when the hot air balloon in which he was attempting to circumnavigate the globe crash landed on a small jungle island off the coast of New Zealand. The EARC is the smallest marsupial in the world and also one of the most intelligent. In fact, were it not for these industrious creatures, Frankenhammer might never have gotten off that island. It's a very interesting story, full of danger, intrigue, and animal cunning. And I'm going to tell it to you right now. Okay, so eARCs are actually electronic advanced reader's copies. These are uncorrected page proofs that publishers send to reviewers. And Bain makes the eARCs available for purchase to readers like you. First up this month, we have Governor by David Weber and Richard Fox. The Terran Republic, the Terran League, genocidal enemies. Members of the 500 don't care. They are the social elite of the heart worlds, light years from any threat of attack. Rear Admiral Terrence Murphy is of the 500. There is no end to how high he can rise in the Republic's power structure, but the powers that be have miscalculated, for Terrence Murphy is a man of honor. He intends to stop the killing. Terrence will end 56 years of bloodshed and slaughter and hell itself rides with him. Governor is by David Weber and Richard Fox, and it is a new novel set in the world of In Fury Born, one of David Weber's most celebrated novels. Next up, we have We Shall Rise, an all new anthology of stories set in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising universe, edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole. The world has been brought to its knees by the zombie virus. Nations have fallen. Cities have been overrun by the infected, and the human race has come perilously close to extinction. But with the first winter come and gone, the infected have been reduced to not much more than a background nuisance, and survivors around the world are taking stock and vowing to rebuild and rise up, stronger, better, and most of all, unafraid and free. And finally, Frontier by Patrick Childs. Marshall Hunter only wanted to fly. The faster, the higher, the better. But Space Force has other plans for him. Interplanetary search and rescue. 
Now a billionaire couple goes missing on their way to survey a near-Earth asteroid. The nuclear-powered foreman is dispatched on an audacious yet high-speed interplanetary run to find the couple's wayward spacecraft and bring them home. Yet as they approach the asteroid, the Borman itself becomes hopelessly disabled, while back in near-Earth orbit, cislunar space falls into chaos as critical satellites fail and valuable lunar mineral shipments disappear in transit. Facing an impossible choice between salvation and sacrifice, Marshall Hunter has to find a way to save both his crewmates and space-age civilization itself from an insidious foe. And that's it for the news. And now my conversation with Tim Powers, DJ Butler, and Christopher Rocchio. Everybody, we're here talking about influences, literary and otherwise, with uh, some great writers. Uh, let me go ahead and introduce the folks who are here with me, uh, virtually at least. We actually span, I think, the every time zone in the continental U.S. Uh, so let's work our way maybe from west back east, uh, excluding me here uh, in my soundproof bunker in Texas. Uh, so on the west coast, let me find his bio we have Mr. Tim Powers. He won the World Fantasy Award twice for his critically acclaimed novels, Last Call and Declare. Declare also received the International Horror Guild Award. His novel On Stranger Tides inspired the Monkey Island video game series and was sold to Disney for the movie franchise installment, Pirates of the Caribbean On Stranger Tides. His book, The Anubis Gates, won the Philip K. Dick Award and is considered a modern science fiction classic and a progenitor of the steampunk genre. He won the Dick Award again for straight science fiction post-apocalypse novel, Dinner at Deviant's Palace. He grew up in Southern California and studied English at Cal State Fullerton, where he met frequent collaborator, excuse me, collaborators, James Blaylock and K.W. Jeter as well as renowned science fiction author Philip K. Dick, who became a close friend and mentor. So maybe we'll talk about that a little later. Uh, Powers still resides in Southern California with his wife, Serena. Tim, thanks so much for coming on the, uh, the Bain Free Radio Hour. Well, happy to be here, David. And in the redheaded stepchild of time zones, mountain time that everyone forgets exists, we have DJ Butler. He grew up in swamps, deserts, and mountains. After messing around for years with the practice of law, he finally got serious and turned to his lifelong passion for storytelling. He now writes adventure stories for readers of all ages, plays guitar, and spends as much time as he can with his family. He is the author of City of the Saints, Rock Band Fights Evil, Space Eldritch and Kreshling from Wordfire Press, and Witchy Eye, Witchy Winter, Witchy Kingdom, and Serpent Daughter, as well as in the Palace of Shadow and Joy, and with Aaron Michael Ritchie, The Cunning Man and The Jupiter Knife from us here at Bain Books. Uh, he's also got a young adult-ish, right, mystery out called The Wilding Probate. That didn't make it into the bio this time. But uh, Dave, thanks for, uh, for coming on to the podcast. Thank you. And East Coast representing Mr. Christopher Rocchio. He lives in Raleigh, North Carolina, where he spends most of his time hunched over a keyboard writing. When he's not doing that, he splits his time between his family, procrastinating with video games, and his friend's boxing gym. Uh, he also is the author, this is not in his official bio, but I will add it, 
of the Sun Eater series, uh, which is, I believe, going to be five books, and he's on book three now, as well as he's got a few spin-off stories and novellas that he's done. He is the co-editor of several anthologies from Bain, and he is an associate editor at there at the home office of Bain Books. Christopher, uh, thank you for being so modest in your bio, but it didn't work. And thanks for coming on the podcast. I was trying to keep it short. Um, <laughs> uh, although I haven't been to the uh, the boxing gym in you know a year under the circumstances, right. forty jumps on me. Yeah, uh, I guess that's true. Yes, you're. Yeah. you're yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, alas, we don't have a specific book to talk about. Although I will mention, uh, of course, Dave's got his. He's got, he's ahead of us of the game. We talked. To, I talked with him about. The Jupiter Knife uh, the other day. Uh, that is out now. Um, also, we mentioned in the Palace of Shadow and Joy, that's coming out in mass market from Bain. And um, Tim, your book, Forced Perspectives, which is the second in a series, uh, is out now in mass market paperback. Um, and I should also mention, actually now on Bain.com, folks go there, we're doing an ebook promotion of, of all of Tim Powers' books that we have the rights to. Um, alternate routes or routes, depending on your regional pronunciation, uh, forced perspectives, and then some of uh, the backlist, which we're fortunate enough to have brought out in ebook, is all on sale. So uh, everybody go load up on, on Tim Powers ebooks. Uh, you can go to bang.com and it's towards the top of the website. Um, and Christopher, you got some stuff coming out too. Maybe we'll plug that at the end or uh, anything. But what, I, what my point of saying all that is we normally talk about a book, on this podcast, but today we're gonna kind of do something different and talk about our influences um, specifically and how, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Uh, so when I was thinking about this, I thought of um, an influence sounds very, maybe one-to-one -to, -one to me. You know, I read this and I got this from that, uh, but I like to think of them as Ray Bradbury talks about it, which is your loves. And he says, you know, you stuff yourself full of your loves, you know, uh, whatever that is that that appeals to you. And then when you're full of this, that it kind of naturally comes out. Um, and I guess uh, writer, as writers, I think we often talk about finding our voice. And I wonder how, for you folks, how did your influences, and maybe you can give specific examples, help you in finding that voice is uniquely your own? And whoever wants to maybe take that, jump in there. Well, I, maybe I'll start. Um, yeah, I think when you when you begin writing in seventh or eighth grade or high school, uh, you're inevitably doing imitations of your favorites. I was doing Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith and Fritz Leiber. And since that was only a few names, you could see chunks of Howard, Liber, Smith. Um, but I think as your reading broadens and you get more and more and more writers who are having an effect on how you write, it's like it becomes confetti. Um, the influences are all still there, but it's only a phrase, a sentence uh, at a time. And so it becomes kind of a distinctive, unique color, even though it's still made up of 
fragments ripped off from your favorites. Uh, I can read any sentence of a book of mine and think, ah, you're doing Liber. Oh, you're doing uh, Kingsley Amis. Oh, there you're doing G.K. Chesterton. Uh, but luckily, they're such small pieces that nobody would say, oh, Powers, Powers is just ripping off exclusively this one or several authors. Yeah, I, uh, I I would say much the same. I, I'm not quite as far along. So uh, if I get any criticism, particularly for my first book, because this has not been happening with the later ones, it's that there's there's too much, you know, there's too much Frank Herbert here <laughs> or uh, there's too much uh, Gene Wolfe there, uh, that sort of thing. And, but I have noticed as I've I've gotten the subsequent volumes out that people have stopped saying that. Uh, so there's been kind of that leavening process. Um, so I, I, I completely agree uh, with that. Um, I think your I, practice of challenging the naysayers to duels and killing them probably also is reducing the feedback you're getting. We're, we're, thinning, we're thinning the herd, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Anyone else have anything else to say? <laughs> uh, you didn't hit the puree button enough times, right? You just right. pulsed it a couple and called it good. You know, now you've right. cut your finger on it. This is, you know, I like to tell people I, I um, writers give terrible advice, including me, but, but, uh, you know, when I hear the advice, oh, you have to read widely in your genre, I, I actually think you should just read widely, period. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the important reasons. People who write middle grade fiction and who just read all the middle grade fiction, they just sound like, they just, they, 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 they run the risk of that, that they're identifiable, that they just sound like they're in that groove and that's it. Um, and so I think reading, reading, uh, well, well beyond, you know, I read a lot more nonfiction than fiction, frankly, um, is, is helpful. Yeah, I agree. And, and, uh, certainly you have to read, I mean, we probably spent our teen years reading pretty exclusively science fiction and fantasy. I know I did, but after that, you have to read, yeah, nonfiction, mysteries, uh, plain old novels. Uh, one of my heroes is, uh, is Kingsley Amos, who I mentioned before. Um, also, Raymond Chandler, Dick Francis, Elmore Leonard. Uh, and I do find that when I'm writing, when I reread something I've written, I often think, ah, there you're doing Dick Francis. There you're doing Elmore Leonard. Um, so yeah, it would be uh, a kind of a thin, anemic diet to read only the genre in which you want to write. Inevitably, it's going to come out derivative. Right. Well, you touched on this, and I and I, well, maybe I'll say this too. I would think of um, you know, Dave. You play guitar too. Um, I'm a guitar player and musician, and I think I, you hear this argument with guitar, well, music in general, uh, you shouldn't learn to play in the style of fill in your favorite guitar player, whoever that is, Chuck Berry, uh, Eddie Van Halen, because you want to sound like yourself. But I think what we're saying here and what I've always argued with the guitar playing community, people who say that, is that you, you learn to play all those things and then the, the combination of that with yourself is what makes your own style. If you don't you can't exist in a vacuum. Uh, and it, and I, I love that idea of the, the chunks, getting the chunks small enough 
so that they're all intermingled that you can't you can't point to them um because yes i think certainly everyone was had the experience for me it was stephen king of being like now i'm gonna write a story about a writer it you know it's just like, it <laughs> so it's when did you that you know um but uh we talked about nonfiction, and I wanted to talk about that. I think all of you gentlemen, I get the impression from reading your work, are big fans of both history, and I guess we, we wouldn't call this nonfiction, but mythology as well. And I wondered how um, that has, you feel, influenced the, the way you write and the types of things you choose to write. Well, I think it's important to be uh, very familiar with as much mythology and folklore as you can find, because for one thing, you discover that the stories are common to every culture. Um, you know, uh, Dionysus, uh, Orpheus, um, Balder, uh, you, uh, the Thousand and One Nights, the Fisher King, all these figures show up in lots of cultures. And therefore, it may be that they are sort of genetically hardwired in the bottoms of our brains. And so we respond to those mythic situations, whether we're familiar with the actual mythologies or not. Our, our lizard brain is familiar with them. And obviously, they're stories that have staying power since they have stayed for thousands of years. And um, I wouldn't say deliberately retell a myth in, you know, uh, some sort of modern or futuristic uh, setting. But I think having them on the shelves of your mind uh makes it kind of a readily doable thing to plug in some aspect of Dionysus um, or, or something from African or Japanese or Norse myth. Uh, and I think those bits, since they have had such staying power, um, still do and and will resonate in the reader's head, even if the reader, and in fact, the writer don't know why those should be particularly effective. Um, and it is just as sort of an anthropological puzzle, fascinating that the stories do consistently show up in such widely separated and not cross-communicating places. It does imply kind of a Jungian library uh, genetically at the bottom of everybody's head. Yeah, even if it's not the whole story that's identical, but there'll be some element of it that that recurs in different places. Yeah, uh, don't look back. You know, uh, when you're leaving Hades or Sodom and Gomorrah, don't look back or you're going to turn into a pillar of salt. Right. Yeah, even though the contexts are very different, that basic element you see iterated in different places. Um, yeah, but that's one of the reasons that I've started reading more nonfiction and, and, and history and, and mythology and all this stuff, you know, lately is because I've realized that just reading uh, people who had already done that was basically playing telephone. Uh, and I was cheapening my engagement with these more, uh, I guess, I, I don't want to say tropes, but these more eternal tropes 
uh, in storytelling, uh, these little, uh, these moments, these ideas, uh, because a lot of uh, a lot of writers, and then maybe this is me speaking more as an editor now, um, because they are engaging with, um, if you're basing your work off of another writer's work, right, or if that's where you're starting, um, you've got this extra interface between you and the tried and tested, uh, you know, mythological truths, you know, to talk about truth and fiction, right? Um, and especially these days too, with, uh, and you see this with a lot of contemporary uh, fantasy, there's like three levels of interface before you get back to the source material where, you know, like, oh, um, you know, we talk about Tolkien clones, right? Whereas Tolkien was engaging directly with the material uh, in some way. You've got someone who's based on uh, base their work on the work of a writer who based their work on Tolkien. And there's a sort of uh, radioactive decay that goes yes. on between those generations. And so I found reading less uh, uh, fantasy lately has been more useful to me as a writer just to, to get those interfaces out of the way. Uh, not that I don't enjoy it, of course, but... Uh, um, especially now too, that's, you know, my day job and the writing, uh, doing anything else when I get home is also helpful. So there's an element of that as well. Um, I, um, I absolutely share these sentiments about engaging with the, the oldest and the, and the widest spread kind of, uh, exemplars of mythology you can uh, on the broader point, nonfiction, you know, world building is hard. World building is, is of necessity uh, an, an act uh, uh, of sleight of hand where you're just trying to convince people that the world is much deeper than it appears. And it's very easy to, to break that illusion. And uh, you, know, you can tell, you'll read writers and you're reading along enjoying the story and you go, oh, this person has no idea how a corporation works. Uh, or, oh, this person was raised irreligious and just has no idea what it's like to be in a religious community. Yes. Right? <laughs> and I don't know what I'm missing by the way, because there are gaps in my own education, right? But, but I think that this, the only solution is just to, and it's a, it's a daunting call, right? It's, to, it's just to be as widely read and as sophisticated about as many things as possible. So you can fake the conversation of a stockbroker as you can fake the interior of the hunting lodge of a big game hunter, even, even though you haven't been either of those. Um, in, in fact, I would say, Dave, you do know what you're missing. And you know that you need to fill that in. Yeah, uh, it totally. would it would be bad to not realize that you are missing acquaintance with some areas and need to fill those in. Oh. Uh, yeah, certainly. Maybe maybe that's one of the values of reading a lot of nonfiction is that you realize that there are whole areas here uh, that you might not even have suspected the existence of, but you've read enough to know, no, this is a big complicated area. You don't just bluff here. Mm -hmm. At least go to Wikipedia and spend a half hour getting some terms down. And it's also the case, right, that the real world will, uh, will have something more strange and more unbelievable than you're probably thinking of in the first place. Um, and so to just uh, stumble upon that in your reading, right, you'll probably find something uh, better than you would have conceived in a vacuum anyway, right? Um, trying to think of a good example. Patrick uh, O'Brien writes about that in terms of the Napoleonic uh, War naval officers' real life experiences. And he says, whatever, whatever I write, however crazy the things I appear to write, it's nothing like Cochrane 
stepping off his own ship onto the deck of another ship, crossing it to step onto the deck of a third ship to accept the surrender of the, of the Spanish captain. Uh, because it's, it's just unbelievable what really happens. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, Christopher, you mm -hmm. bring up a good point. Um, whenever I uh, decide on a sort of subject uh, that will support writing a book, I don't approach it with a story in mind. Um, I research the area looking for bits that are too cool not to use. Um, and find, I mean, you could read a biography of Beatrix Potter. And if it was thorough enough, you would find a bunch of what the hell was that type moments. <laughs> and when I find these things very gratefully, um, and as you say, they're way more colorful and interesting and intriguing than anything I'd make up out of my own head. Then the task is simply cook up a plot that connects the dots. Uh, so I never have a plot in it. I never arrive with a plot. I deduce my plot from what the research provides. Well, that's how like well, I mean, that, that's how history itself works, right? You know, the the pieces are already in place, and then and then things happen because those pieces are there too. Um, so leading with the plot in the first place wouldn't wouldn't you know make sense because it's not like World War II had to happen and then uh, that we worked backwards in time somehow to determine what the map looked like. Um, <laughs> right. So. <clears throat> um, now, and I think this kind of hits on maybe some differences between research and influence. And I, I, the way I would think of it is research maybe is some of those things that you can maybe bluff your way through. And ooh, I really don't know what it's, I, let me give, spend a, a, an hour on enough lingo so my stockbroker character is convincing sounding versus maybe, you know, you could call this research too, but what I would think in terms of this conversation as an influence being more a deeper knowledge um, that you, and it sounds what I'm hearing from you gentlemen and what it's been my experience is for me at least, when I try to do it in that sort of more, I need something to fill in this slot, let me go research it and fill it in. It can sometimes work and sometimes feel fake, but it feels like to me when you the deeper the knowledge you you have of this the more natural it is the more it's really something happening in your subconscious almost is that was that a fair assessment that you you're you're letting all this stuff percolate and it's sort of yeah i don't know that's i'll stop there <laughs> no i yeah i ideally you get immersed in it enough so that it does percolate down mm. and you are able to come up with uh, an answer without having to go back to your research books. Well, sometimes too, if you're writing far future, if you're writing a secondary world fantasy and you're just taking these things for inspiration and the facts are inconvenient. I know this isn't how your, your books work, Tim, but um, my books take place so far in the future that if I want something to be wrong, um, uh, because I want to use it to make a point, it's it's fine, right? And depending on the kind of fiction you're working on, you can blur reality in uh, in, in certain ways. I uh, I remember I had a reader message me asking about a, a Greek philosopher that one of my characters quoted, and they couldn't find any reference to him, and I'd made him up. 
uh, I needed a credible, uh, credible sounding quote, but I couldn't find anything to that effect. I'm sure it must exist somewhere, but I invented a, a, a whole character because I, I just couldn't find something that was exactly right. Um, but uh, but readers won't necessarily know. There's a certain amount of uh, of hiding your work that gets done, you know, in the writing process. It's like, you know, when you when you build a house, right? The next craftsman who comes along covers up the mistakes of the previous one. So, you know, by the time you're painting the walls, you know, nobody can see the, uh, the twisted beams inside or, or, or what, what have you. Um, Assume you wrote the quote in good, the quote in good Attic Greek. And then I did not. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I have a guy for that, but uh, my <laughs> Greek is anemic. So <laughs> it helps to have a guy. I've got a whole monastery full of uh, priests who I go to for Latin help. I say, okay, I, I need this expressed in Latin, but it has to have a pun involving this over here. I have no idea how you guys are going to do that, but <laughs> let, let's let's go. Come on. Uh, that's an advanced ask. <laughs> they always come through. They're great. Um, so that's so think, Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to make a, sort of a different kind of comment, mm -hmm. uh, and and. Um, a different way to think about what influences are because in my experience sometimes influences are not a matter of style or knowledge they're a matter of showing an open door or or giving permission if you will and i'm gonna i'm gonna name i'm gonna name two i'm gonna, I'm gonna be real short on the first one so i can spend more time on the second so the first is tolkien right and and tolkien's forever sort of the great for me and and of course you read him when you're eight um and and it's a great adventure tale right and there's like dwarfs and and whatever and, and then you read them when you're when you're uh 15 and you go oh yes the, the these are german names and these are coming out of the voluspa and right you you feel very proud of yourself and then you, you read them as you get older and you, and you you increasingly realize that that tolkien is writing a deeply a profoundly Christian work, right? A book about which he himself said, this is deep, this is so Catholic, I don't know how anyone will ever like it, right? <laughs> and um, and Tom Shippey in his book on Tolkien, when he notes that comment says, I don't even know what he means, right? But uh, so so Tolkien for me, uh, I, I think was, is very empowering. Um, and then, okay, so here's the second, so that's a big influence. Here's the second one. So when I was a kid and I read Tolkien, I went back to the library to try and look up other fantasy adventures, right? And I found this little battered paperback in my small town library with this gut picture of a guy with kind of long white hair and a green tunic and his hit a rapier that was on fire and he's fighting this winged demon. And I said, okay, this looks, this looks right for me. And I read it. And this book is, uh, it's called the drawing of the dark. And this book is about a, an Irish mercenary named Brian Duffy who gets hired to be a bouncer in Vienna as the, as the Turks are besieging it. And, uh, and it turns out over time that the sort of crazy old man who hired him uh, may be older than he appears. And it turns out that uh, Brian Duffy eventually is the incarnation, the reincarnation of King Arthur. And maybe he's come back several times in the past. And, and the reason he's here at Vienna is because the, the West exists on an, uh, it's an 800 year cycle, uh, which is driven by a, a vat of beer. Uh, that has to be drawn the 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 Herzvest and the heart of the West beer that has to be drawn every 800 years to maintain the power of the West. Uh, a vat that I think is, as I recall, is on the uh, original grave tumulus of the sort of 
founding the Fisher King, right? The founding hero of the West. And this book is, is insane, right? It was crazy. Like who would write like this? There's this, there's this fantasy set in the real world and, and we're, and King Arthur and all this. And uh, so I ran back to the library to try and get um, more books by this guy and they didn't have any. And I thought, damn it, Tim Powers, <laughs> one hit wonder. <laughs> uh like th white you're gonna write one book and leave me hanging forever uh so so uh so i didn't read any any more tim powers novels for i don't know like 15 20 years and then when i came back to fantasy again as an adult and was rereading stuff i remembered this book very vividly uh and was delighted to find how many other books this guy tim powers had written and uh and i uh so from from one of the things i love is for me, they sort of showed a way to write fantasy that's set in the real world, that both involves real, real people in real places and all, again, real, you know, spiritual realities. Um, and, uh, and, and so that, so those are, those are two examples of, uh, of big influences for me. Ah, I love the company you put me in. Um, yeah, I, I, um, two things one i find it real advantageous to set fantasies in the real world uh you know rome london beirut uh what have you vienna um because i want to do as much as possible to trick the reader into thinking that this is really happening to real people in the same world you live in this isn't an alternate reality um, I'm always annoyed if somebody says uh, Powers book takes place in an alternate Los Angeles. I think, no, no, it's this Los Angeles. I mean, go look, it's all there. Um, because it's not so important maybe uh, for say a mystery novel, if you set it in, you know, any town USA, uh, because you're not going to call on the reader to believe vicariously anything they haven't heard of but in our books we're going to ask them to believe conditionally uh in vampires ghosts god knows what genies space aliens and that is such a demand on their credulity that i want to have everything else surrounding it very solid you know new york uh cell phones 7-eleven uh, so that ideally the reader will think, oh yeah, cell phone, 7-Eleven, this is the real world. Oh my God, a genie in the real world. Rather than, oh, I see, this is an imaginary story. Um, and you mentioned Tolkien. Um, I kind of live on C.S. Lewis and uh, G.K. Chesterton. Um one of the, speaking of influences, one of the books I'm constantly ripping off is Lewis's That Hideous Strength, which has to do with uh, Arthurian things, of course. But Lewis was such a vivid writer, um, so sensorially immersive. Uh, he really puts you in the scene. And then he does ring those Jungian bells. Um, sets off depth charges in your subconscious uh not just swords and towers and dragons but the kind of thing that that kind of numinous effect 
the kind of thing that makes you think, I think I had dreams about this when I was a little kid. Um, and, and I'm Catholic and practicing Catholic, not recovering. Um, and so I would like to sort of have the story happen in that light. I mean, I don't have uh, consecrated hosts chasing away vampires or, you know, crucifixes driving away vampires. But I like to think there's a sort of a Catholic sensibility, unstated but implicit. Um, I probably shouldn't say that in public. Some people will say, well, hell with powers. I don't need that crap. <laughs> not, not on here, I don't think. Um, <laughs> no, I love that. I, and I like that idea of um and a deeper even if it's not an obvious influence that there's a sort of a deeper meta not metaphysical i don't know i don't know what term to use anyway um well, there's an ethic in the word yes, there we go yes there we go yeah and i think uh, actually going back i read one thing and you know christopher probably knows where i stole this from it's a twitter account i won't say what it is but you know, it was like one of the good things about reading old books is it is is a way to break yourself out of the chains of modernism and postmodernism, and not that that's you have to, but that no, you have to, you do have to, <laughs> <laughs> you could say, it. but you know that that you are kind of what Christopher was saying about a remove. It's like we are at such a cynical distance from uh, you know whatever you want to call the truth, right? Uh, in our culture and in, in our media now, I think that that is one of the values of reading these older things is, is it's hard to, it, it so permeates every aspect of life that it's hard to see, see another way unless you're going back to an original source. Well, you see people go so far, right, as to say that in America, there is no culture, right? Mm -hmm. um, that you, that's a common sort of thing that gets repeated online all the time. It's absolutely not true. Um, it's just that people don't go looking for it. Yeah. Um, and, and there is, as I say, there's several layers of interface between, um, you know, most people and any sort of culture, right? Um, that... Um, they'll sooner recognize it on the far side of the world than down the street. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and fiction's one of those places where you can sort of point people back towards things that, uh, you know, that they might've remembered as kids, right? Um, or that they might have some vague memory, you know, uh, about. And you can do that with storytelling, even if the story you're telling is, you know, got made up Greek philosophers in it and is, is set in the distant future. Um, you could still put, uh, you know, because people talk about fiction like it's true, right? Especially if it's a writer like uh, like Dostoevsky, right? Who's, you know, writing, ser you know, serious capital L literature. Uh, people don't act like that's not a true story, even though we know yeah. Ivan and Alyosha don't exist right um there's still a truth there there's truth in uh in middle earth right even though elves didn't exist right um and so being able to put people in contact with um with uh with these ideas these truths right is is a cool thing to do and if you could do that you know while also telling an entertaining story right you know not to to go back to the uh the the yeah, and it also has wizards in it, right? And, <laughs> and people die in this story, right? But but you can, if you can do that and entertain at the same time, then you're off to the races. So. Yeah. Well, actually, that was a pivot, maybe a good pivot to one thing else I wanted to talk about, which was sort of 
um, place as influence. And I've mentioned in the in my little introduction, we're sort of spread out across the continental U.S. here. Um, and I think there is a, a narrative that is increasingly true of generica, right? That everything is the same and, and you go to any place and it's a photocopy in America now. And I do think sadly, many of those um, interesting rough edges are increasingly being sanded off by, and, and you can argue it's a good thing. You can argue, it, I, 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 there, there are trade-offs. Right? I'm not as sympathetic to that argument, but okay, you know, right, there are trade-offs. But, um, but I do think that place, culture comes from place in a lot of ways. And, you know, moving from Texas to North Carolina, you know, I always believe that, that well, it's going to be the exact, and you realize like, yeah, there's a McDonald's there too, but it's not the, in, you know, and they're both nominally Southern, you know, right. I mean, well, North Carolina is very Southern, but Texas is sort of its own weird subset of Southern. And, but at any rate, it felt very different moving and, uh, and then moving back. And um, so I just wonder how you all, uh, you know, I think actually everyone we're talking to has been pretty well rooted where they uh, grew up and how, how have you felt maybe those regional, um, that sense of place influencing your work in any way? Or I guess just influencing your person which influences your work. Well, uh, I've lived in Southern California since I was seven years old uh more than good lord more than 60 years um so i i'm not a native but i think i've been a californian for longer than a lot of natives um and always right around los angeles and so i've got to know los angeles pretty well and it might be true that any city you have some familiarity with turns out to have wondrous secret uh, glamours to it. But certainly I've found that's true of LA, um, largely because of the climate, largely because of the movie industry, um, which brought with it a bunch of hushed up mysteries. And uh, it's also the place somehow where all weird cults gravitate to. It's kind of the low spot in the pavement where they all puddle up. <laughs> And uh, so I've found L.A. just an inexhaustible source of weirdness for, uh, for fiction. In fact, it's my favorite city. I figure anybody can fall in love with New Orleans or San Francisco in a weekend. Um, they're sort of promiscuous cities. But uh, you got to kind of get acquainted with L.A. to see past the, I don't know what, billboards um, to its kind of uh, huddling mysteries. And luckily it doesn't go back too far. I mean, in London, you're overwhelmed. There's, you know, a, a thousand years or so of history there to look at. LA, you really, if you've gone back to 1910, you've pretty much exhausted all the interesting stuff. You can really feel it when you go to Europe. It's it's like a, a palpable aura. Right. Uh, even when I was a kid, I was like, uh, oh, that's 2,000 years old. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we were in Israel a couple of years ago, and 
they say, okay, you see that house there? That's where the Virgin Mary was born. Uh, across the street, you see, look down the street there. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, right here is where Pontius Pilate uh, washed his hands uh, of the whole responsibility. And you, it's just sensory overload. You think, stop, space this stuff out. You can't give me all these things in one hour. But it's within walking distance, in, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and people still live there. Somebody, somebody's making, you know, uh, macaroni and cheese in the house Mary was born in. <laughs> oh man, I think, uh, and there's a ladder right at the at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Nobody's <laughs> moved in two hundred years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just, it, they'll come back for it. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't move yeah. that. <laughs> I uh, amazing. Uh, I actually, uh, Dave, I've moved around more than you give me credit for. I, I well, lived you, five, you years, but, but five years in England and uh, two in Italy and uh, grew up in upstate New York. But I, I have lived in New York. You're okay. just a very tall Bilbo Baggins, Dave. Yeah, <laughs> I, I always going home. But I'm basically from Utah. That That's fair, right? I, something like <laughs> half my life, I think. Um, so there's a there was an essay. I, I think it might have been, the original essay might have been called uh, Invisible Nation and by um, by Grail Marcus, and it was expanded into a book called The Old Weird America, and it's about Bob Dylan. And he says, look, what, you know, you got to understand a lot of things to understand Bob Dylan. But one of the things you got to understand is he's writing about a, America that's real. It's just the pre-homogenized America uh, where where we were, yeah, not one culture, but 500 different cultures. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I love that America, you know, uh, um, England, a tiny Island was epic enough that uh, Tolkien could write the Lord of the Rings and produce a whole world out of it. But America is considerably more epic. Uh, and we have all the same stuff and we have, we have multiple language groups and we have lost civilizations and we have mysterious ruins. No one understands. And, and we have, even still today, discernible, you know, you drive around different parts of America, you, you can still see the underlying cultures, you know, uh, I mean, one of the great invisible cultures is, is German Americans, there were like a, th a third of Americans are descended from Germans, but of course, it became profoundly uncool to be German uh, at a couple of points last century, right, and so, um, so my grandparents, for example, you know, I'm, I'm a quarter uh, kind of East German, uh, never did you know dropped any german traditions there was no uh you know uh none of the distinctive german stuff at christmas so um um so i i guess i guess this is rambling i guess uh one i i love that about america i love that america has all that culture and i uh uh so i look look to peel back the layers of mcdonald's's and uh, the the national news media and and see what's underneath um two yes i do think so living in utah is geographically distinctive i'll tell you what you cannot get lost okay you cannot get lost why because there are mountains on the east that's it if you see mountains you're facing east and you can find your way there anywhere that is inhabited in utah there are mountains to the east and 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 i think that lends a sense of safety and also permanence and yeah. orientation. And I think that that might be different if I uh, grew up in Wichita or yeah. somewhere where I didn't have that. Yeah. 
I remember talking to uh, Dick Revis, who taught at NC State. He was a writer at Texas Monthly for years. And I don't think this originated with him, but it originated for me with him, which was this idea of how cultures are tied to, I mean, way, way back. And so, you know, his example was um, Europeans ha had wheat and you can save wheat for long periods of time. And the Native Americans uh, in America had corn and corn doesn't keep very well. And so you have a culture, a fiesta culture, you know, in South you know, Mexico and, and where if you have a good crop, you live it up because it may not be a good crop and you may be dying next year, but Europeans uh, have wheat. And so you store it up and save it, you know, and how that difference in the grain trickles down through centuries you know and, and that would have huge effects on the culture sure yeah and you know his thing he was from west texas he said in west texas you can see things you can't hide you know it's flat and there's not much <laughs> there's no trees he said but you know in north carolina or west virginia there are trees there's little hollows that you can huddle in and and you know, and so how does that affect and um it's it's interesting to think about that the land itself um not just the people in it the land shapes culture and then um the movie industry in los angeles as tim said you know that uh being such a big driver of, of growth in la early on and how does that affect and things? and sort of the attitudes um yeah I, th I think every living person except me in la has written a screenplay um <laughs> and it, 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 it sort of permeates everything. Uh, and certainly you, you walk around and you say, you know what, I'm standing exactly where the camera was in Sunset Boulevard mm -hmm. uh, when it looked down uh, Gower, I think it was, street. Uh, and it, that's William Holden's window right there. Um, uh, you're constantly sort of tripping over artifacts of imaginary worlds um there, there's a place in olvera street which is now kind of mexican souvenir uh lane and if you look at the bricks above all the little booths and note that white brick next to a broken one and then the barred windows with a kinked bar right there and then you go look at the old charlie chaplin movie the kid uh, you can say, oh, look, that's exactly where, um, well, Chaplin and who was the kid? I forget his name. Uh, anyway, he was later Uncle Fester in the oh, Adams family. Um, what was this? Jackie? Coogan. Jackie Coogan. Very good. That's <laughs> right at the base of that wall is where they sat down and hugged each other after Chaplin rescued Jackie Coogan from the evil social worker. And you push your way through Serapis and Dia del Muerte souvenirs, and there is the step. And you think, well, then it was real. Yeah. I mean, there's the step. Look, I'm going to sit on it myself. Um, it's a, it, the imaginary is always tangible. It's right there. You can sit on it. Yeah. Um, I, going back to this, Christopher, do you want to say something? Um, no, go ahead, David. Oh, I was going to say, going back to the idea of influence, that I just thought we could also talk about, Dave kind of hit on this sort of um, 
maybe not people who the the writing specifically or even the ideas, but just sort of a ethos uh, has influenced you. I thought I wondered about sort of mentors maybe and that you guys have had or how that's affected you. And also I think maybe collaborators or even in a way competitors, you know, and I think about again, to use music, um, Paul McCartney and Brian Wilson, like basically like, oh, is that right? You think you're better than me, you know, one upping each other and uh, how that can work as an influence. So maybe um, other people, not their work, but the people themselves as an influence maybe. Well, um, I um, met uh, Philip K. Dick uh, when I was 20 uh, because he was kind of on the run from a bunch of catastrophic experiences in Northern California and Canada. And he kind of had cut himself off at that point from his whole previous history. Uh, only his agent knew where he was currently living, which was Fullerton in Southern California. And so uh, me and a bunch of students at Cal State Fullerton wound up hanging out with him. And I think it was real instructive in that, um, for one thing, I caught on that writers aren't rich. Uh, <laughs> I think the Philip K. Dick estate still owes me about 40 bucks because Phil was always, you know, Powers, can, can you loan me 20 bucks? <laughs> okay, now it's 40. Um, and, and it kind of uh, showed me and Jim Blaylock and K.W. Jeter that being a writer, at least specifically a science fiction fantasy writer, was not a matter of like an ivory tower or the the little gazebo in the back garden where you retire to do your writing um you're writing at a kitchen table while somebody's yelling at you um and so that was valuable um we really the three of us me and blaylock and jeter didn't show him manuscripts we were working on it was. It would seem. It would have seemed presumptuous. It would have been like uh, dirt lot kids playing football, asking the pro football player next door for advice. Um, we would remark, "Oh, you know, I just got another rejection slip," and Phil would say, "Just as well. There's too many books in the world already." Uh, <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, each of us did at one point at some crisis say, Phil, uh, they just rejected this book. They want the advance money back. Uh, what do I do? And in each of those cases, he was able to do something. Uh, for Jeter, he worked real hard to get Jeter's for, uh, book, Dr. Adder, published. And for Blaylock, he wrote a very nice blurb uh, for Blaylock's first novel. And for me, he recommended me to his agent, who in fact said, no, we don't like Powers' book. Um, and the same thing happened to me. 
<laughs> Late, later, that agent did take me on, but at first they said, we, know, we see no evidence of value in this guy's work. Um, but yeah, Phil was mainly uh, an example rather than you know, an advisor, a critic, uh, a beta reader. Yeah, I had a, a relatively different relationship with uh, with John Kessel, right? He was a professor at uh, sure. NC State. Uh, taught uh, taught David too. Um, David actually taught the fiction class before my fiction class at uh, at NC State. So I listened to David lecture in the hallway, and I was like, "Why didn't I get the guy who actually likes science fiction?" Because <laughs> um, uh, my grad student did not. But uh, but Dad Kessel later on. And uh, and he, uh, he he did the same thing. He recommended uh, me to his agent, who said no. Uh, and it was the only uh, feedback at all I'd gotten from an agent for like ten months before I finally, uh, you know, in a hundred letters letters later, uh, got got any got any feedback. But Kessel too didn't you know look at my work or anything um, beyond a couple chapters because I I snuck them in as uh, class assignments. <laughs> Uh, but it was, it was in, in the same way, it was sort of general advice. Um, but, uh, I, I'm struggling to think of another sort of mentor relationship. Um, you know, even, even now that I've been you know, working at Bain for, well, I mean, I, I know a lot of writers now having worked at Bain, but nothing's been very, uh, you know, close one-on-one -on -one sort of thing. It's not like I've got David Weber breathing down my neck or anything. Um, but, uh, although David is awesome, um, the passel of Davis, but yeah. hmm? there was a pretty great moment, which which at the time you were you described as a I am Spartacus moment, where at uh, Liberty Con. Oh I, shoot, yeah. Where, um, uh, I can't remember. Was it Tony? Someone someone mentioned the book first. Yeah, so um, that was really cool because because one of the one of the useful things that I've gotten out of having worked at Bain uh, is is the social connections, right? And so when I needed people to blurb my book. Um, Tony just bullied a lot of her writers into doing it for me. Uh, and so uh, Tony quite quite nicely, considering I'm not published by Bain, um, was I, which to explain briefly, uh, I had been working as an intern for Bain for about a year uh, trying to sell the manuscript, but I also felt like it would be presumptuous to, to just show it to Tony um, or to try and you know use my internship to get published. So I'd been looking for agents the whole time and, and I didn't, make a big deal out of the fact that I was interning there, figured they'd think maybe it's an easy sale. And I wasn't sure that Bain was going to hire me either. Um, and so, you know, if they weren't going to hire me, did I want them to publish me? I don't know. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but uh, I managed to, uh, to sell the book and then I got my job the same week, uh, a year into my internship. And so I've had this weird double life ever since. Um, and it's been strange because I've sort of had two publishers because Bain has in a lot of ways done a lot of uh, you know, sort of uh, outreach for me, right? Like getting these authors to do blurbs. And so we were at Liberty Con and Tony had slipped a slide in that, you know, oh, her junior editor has betrayed her and published somewhere else, but uh, his book's all right. You should go look at it. And she pulled it up on her slideshow in front of a couple hundred people at the convention. And David Drake says, oh, it's, you know, it's very good. And then suddenly uh, Eric Flint, who did a quote too, is like, yeah, you know, Dave said, you know, <clears throat> Um, if Eric watches that, I'm sorry. Um, and there were a couple others who stood up and it was really cool, uh, you know, in that moment to have, to have support like that. I still don't really know how to respond to it. You'll notice I'm not looking at the camera. Um, 
<laughs> but uh, but that that sort of thing is neat. Um, thanks for reminding me, Dave. Yeah, I got a lot of help, almost mentor style, um, from Lester Del Rey. Uh, he bought a book of mine, that Drawing of the Dark, uh, that David mentioned. Um, and then I wrote another book, and he said, "This is no good. I don't want it." Um, I said, well, you like to outline. How about if I rewrite it? He said, I don't even like to outline anymore. Uh, <laughs> and you owe me that money back, the advance. I said, well, it's spent. It's gone. He said, well, then you owe me another book. So I wrote another book. And he said, wow, this makes that previous one look good. Uh, no, I don't want this either. You, you have the money? I said, no, the money's still gone, man. He said, well, then you owe me another book. So I wrote another book. And he said, this stinks worse than ever. Uh, luckily, I had been able to sell those rejects to Ace Books and eventually got enough to where I was able to pay Delray back. But every time he rejected a book, um, and it was Anubis Gates, Dinner at Deviant's Palace, and on Stranger Tides, he would send a four or five page single space letter explaining what was wrong with it. And I would read it and think, wow, good points. Yeah, I, I should have thought of this stuff myself. Uh, and I'd fix it up. And I'd say, Lester, I fixed it up. Your points were very valid. I've rewritten it. Do you want to see it? And he'd say, no, I, I still hate it. Uh, but I thought you should know what's wrong with it. And so for those three books, even though he didn't want them, he was a very valuable editor. Um, they were hugely improved because I took the advice he gave me, which he did just gratis. I mean, he, he got nothing out of that. Um, that was really just doing me a favor. Um, but the books all benefited hugely from those long letters he sent. And the same thing was happening to Jim Blaylock. Uh, he sold two to Delray and then got everything else rejected. And one time we ran into Del Rey at a convention and he said, ah, Blaylock and Powers, I want to congratulate you two on having found a market for your second rate works. <laughs> Thank you, Lester. <laughs> Didn't he write a similar letter for Elf Stones of Shannara? I think I read a similar story where I think he published sort of Shannara and then he got the second book from Terry Brooks and said, no, this is, and wrote a really lengthy critique that resulted in the complete rewrite. You know, a collection of Del Rey's letters would be a very valuable book <laughs> because his advice is very shrewd, very insightful. Uh, I mean, I read those letters and I thought, damn powers, how did you ever think the book was adequate? Uh, now that you see what he's pointed out about it. Well, oh. some, some of the best writing, uh, <clears throat> one of the great moments of my uh, in personal development in my writing career was the, the first uh, comment letter I got from Tony Weisskopf, which was not extremely detailed. She said, here's this, here's this comment, and then here's this other comment, very specific fix on one page comments. And she said, and make it shorter. And, and I looked at it and I said, I don't want to remove any, <laughs> anything. <laughs> yeah. How can I make it shorter without excising a character or a plot? 
And I discovered that there was an enormous amount of fat in my prose. Uh, and I could just go through and I cut 40,000 words yeah. out of a 240,000 word book from the sentence and to make it shorter. Uh, yeah, right. Sometimes it doesn't take much. Uh, I had the opposite problem. My first editor, because um, when I sold uh, my first book, uh, Empire of Silence, it was half as long as it is now. Um, and she said, this is great. I love it, but I need you to fix these two things. And I looked at them and I was like, if I do that, I have to rewrite everything after like chapter 10. She's like, it'll be fine. Do it. Um, and so I, uh, I spent like three months not talking to anybody um, and, and trying to fix the damn thing. And it ended up twice as long. And so whenever I talk to people who want to be writers now and they're worried about word count limits, I'm like, you can make it longer later. Wait, sell it first. Um, <laughs> write what they're asking for. If you think it should be a longer book, you can, you can sneak that in a revision. They won't notice um, <laughs> because they often don't. Uh, I'm still not quite sure I fixed those two points that my editor was asking me to fix. I, I, I think I may have just written around them. Um, but, uh, but you know, that's one thing that I think a lot of people lose sight of is that the whole editorial process is kind of a conversation. Um, and there, and there is room to, you know, it's not A to B, it, it, you can go from A to, you know, X, um, and, and sort of go back and forth around these things. Um, because critic the criticism could be valid, but the prescription for fixing well, it might be off sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people have pointed that out. I think Aldous Budras has. If somebody says, uh, this scene doesn't work because you need to do this, they're correct that it doesn't work, but they're probably not correct about what it needs. Uh, so disregard the prescription and look at the diagnosis. Yeah, whenever I sit down with a writer working, you know, at Bain, like with a short story or something, because I do a lot of anthologies. And uh, the first thing I usually say is, if I'm wrong uh, with any of the criticism I'm about to give you, you can ignore me. Uh, but only if I'm wrong, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, Go ahead, please. Oh, so so I, I've read someone, I think it might be Orson Scott Card, uh, asked, gives readers a printed copy of the manuscript to read. And says, look, all I want you to do is mark the page if you're bored and mark the page if you don't understand. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't care what you think. <laughs> yeah. That's a good, yeah. you know, uh, right, because people think what we're saying, yes, that how people think to fix things is not always the correct thing and it's more it's more valuable to know well tony weiskopf she's done like slush like she's reading slush they filmed it you could probably find it on our youtube channel but and she'll do the like she calls it i think the red line of death and it's like and that's where i would have stopped reading if this you know came in and that's very valuable um you know i'll i'll just say because he won't he may watch this that tony daniel has been obviously I, I like his stories in his books. I've read, you know, most of them, but uh, I don't think you would read anything I've written and think this is a Tony Daniel protege, but, you know, he was my teacher and undergrad and um, he's the reason I'm working here. I'm doing this podcast because of him. And so, you know, his advice, what funny, I have an MFA, which I, I won't go into the whole long story, but I wouldn't be working at Bain if it weren't for that, because I moved to North Carolina and Bain's offices are there and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, he was the one who, 
I thought encouraged me to get an MFA in creative writing. And then years later, he would always like make fun of it a little bit. And I'd be like, it was your fault. He's like, I didn't say do it. I said, you could do it. <laughs> I was like, oh, I misinterpreted that. <laughs> I could see him saying that complete with the eyebrows. So you said you could. Do I mean, it. yeah. I mean, you know, you could get an, get an MFA, you know, and I was like, oh, and I'd never heard of an MFA. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And so I did it. And, and I'm very glad I did. I mean, many things in life would have turned out very, very differently. Um, but, you know, I always be like, why are you giving me such a hard time? You told me to do it. <laughs> it's like looking back on it. No, he didn't. He just said you could. So um, well, now I, I teach one class a week at a high school of the arts lately doing it like this zooming and um i always tell them no editor ever is going to care what your degree of education is mm -hmm. um in fact i point out that i'm really pretty sure i have a degree in english uh <laughs> I never went to the graduation or picked up a diploma, but I assume they keep records <laughs> and that if it was ever important, I could ask them and they could go to some box in the basement and, and verify it. Um, but I, I, I always want to emphasize, you know, no editor is going to ask to see evidence that that you have a degree yeah well the converse of that too right is that readers are going to assume you have like eight uh <laughs> I, I had a i had a, a gentleman write me to ask because i'd written a book about space romans if i might be interested in helping translate william of montferrat's uh crusader texts right all right and all right. i was like ah yes my latin is definitely <laughs> that good um save that letter <laughs> i i have interest in doing that yes yeah it would be it would I be don't cool have, uh, i don't have ability <laughs> I, I will need to go to school first right um not that i couldn't figure out a sentence or two here and there but i am you know not uh, not at that level. I have a friend who wants to go and get a, a doctorate of medieval studies. And I said, Anthony, just write fantasy. Uh, <laughs> people will listen to you far more than they would if you had a, a degree in medieval studies. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, back to one thing we mentioned earlier, um, reading old books. Um, I think it's real important that you be familiar with 19th century, 18th century um, poetry, prose, nonfiction, everything, so that you kind of have your weight spread out across several uh, centuries. And that way you aren't stuck by default with the 2020 assumptions and attitudes and beliefs. Um, I, I recently read somebody who said, uh, well, I hear Dune is a good book, even though it was published some time ago. Uh, and uh, uh. even though, I mean, to hell with, uh, you know, um, Jonathan Swift uh, or the Brontes or Dickens, they were published a long time ago. Um, and I think there's a real risk. I don't keep up with our field worth a damn, but therefore I'm able to speak from the authority of ignorance. I think there's a real risk in getting saturated and marinated in the concerns of right now mm -hmm. 2021 
and your writing will be inextricably stapled to these pages of the calendar. Um, for one thing, it's conformity. You're doing what everybody's doing. Um, while acquaintance with uh, some, you know, having lived in vicariously previous centuries breaks you out of that um, and gives you, a, I hope, unique voice, style, sort of plots. Um, but also, if you write very timely, relevant stuff, very shortly, it's obsolete. Uh, if you remember Galaxy Magazine from like 1969, uh, every story was about like galactic empires 5,000 years in the future. But what the characters were concerned with was student unrest and legalizing marijuana and the war in Vietnam. I mean, the pages smell of patchouli oil. Um, and, and most of those stories are unreadable now. And I think a lot of stuff that's being published now is going to look awfully quaint in 15 or 20 years. Um, they'll say, why were they all so obsessed here? Uh, the equivalent of student unrest and the Vietnam War. Um, so I like to think my fiction is never relevant. Um, and I like to think I never in my fiction have something to say. I mean, I, th I mean, accidentally, you're gonna, of course. I mean, any piece of fiction more than four pages is gonna have some kind of theme. But I always figure, let your subconscious work that out. Don't pay attention. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, you're going to say, well, this story is my statement on this current social issue. And but, as soon as I, as a reader, perceive that going on, I put the story down. Because mm -hmm. suspension of disbelief at that point is impossible. Yeah. And I think it as you say, it dates it. And I think it, um, shoot, I just lost what I was going to say. Oh, once you crack the code, you know, because it's so one to one. Once you crack the code, this is about Vietnam. It loses yes. any kind of, you're done. It's applicability. It's, yeah. It's, you know, it's, oh, this is about whatever it would be, you know. Well, that's the old, the old Tolkien chestnut, right? About, about disliking allegory, right? And preferring that his work be applicable. Right in the sense of being broadly applicable, right. as opposed to this is about World War II. Right, it's 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 uh, it's got some by being never relevant in a sense, it's always relevant. Right. Um, yeah, yes. And yes. I think that's where we, you know, because someone listening, right, is bound to say, "Well, you just said that there's truth in fiction, and that your work's about something 20 minutes ago, and now you're saying it's now we're saying it's not about anything." Um, and I think that's maybe where the distinction is, right? Um, I think I think it's about the characters. Yeah, um, it's about this guy running from a vampire. Yeah, and if uh, you see yourself in those people, right, then that's cool. But yeah, uh, but in it's fact, it's about it's about uh, yeah. I was on a panel once at a convention about vampire stories, and somebody on the panel said, "Well, you know, Dracula is actually about the plight of 19th century women." And I said, no, it's actually about a guy who lives forever by drinking other people's blood. <laughs> Don't take my word for it. Check it out. Um, and <laughs> no. that's okay for readers and critics to think that way, but it would be disastrous for writers right. to think that way. Yeah. Well, I think it is disastrous. 
for some writers. I mean, and I think I think often what happens is um, cheap, obvious, contemporary partisan politics substitute for failure to find a muse. Mm-hmm. Right. If Very I good. Can... Yeah. And you not only will have written something contemptible, but um, you'll be a conformist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think even things like I bring Bradbury up Fahrenheit 451, which was very clearly about well it was really more about television than it was about censorship but even <laughs> even just the sentence i just said it wasn't about that it was he was taking in things and he had a worldview that he was probably aware of but he wasn't writing it to convince you he was writing it out of himself to tell this story of guy montag not to rail you know and, and that even is probably butting up against the line of like being a little bit of a polemic but um i think it works because it's not to me and and maybe my love of bradbury blinds me to it but you know it it felt like something genuine from him and his where he is seeing the world rather than a a statement specifically that he's out to ring you know poppy on the head well i don't think having a point's the problem right (laughs) Right. you know that tv is maybe rotting people's brains is perfectly valid point that bradbury was making yeah but he wasn't uh, he wasn't being so blunt about it that he could have just written uh, written an essay, mm-hmm. um, you know, because because stories are worth more than the the words they're made out of in the same way that a picture is worth more. Um, and if you can say you know lots of different things at once with narrative, um, then you're you're doing more than than an essayist would be doing. Um, and if um, but if all you're doing is saying the one thing and it's brassy and cheap, then you're not really writing a story and you may as well, you may, you would have done as well with a blog post. Right. Yeah. Um, again, especially if it's something that is the, the cause du jour, right. You know, know. and it feels, I mean, you know, and And I I think you can win a Hugo for a blog post now anyway. So might as well just write the blog post. Let's just write blogs. (laughs) <laughs> blogs feel like charmingly retro at this point right like <laughs> so. don't give the uh don't give the teenagers any ideas oh yeah we don't want they're gonna bring back the blogosphere you know, when, uh will be the, the the next generation of hipsters pining yeah. for those old days i realized anyway okay uh well this has been great but it has also been about an hour so we should probably um wrap it up uh, did anyone have any final thoughts or we want to call it good there? No, just thanks for having me. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you all. Um, Tim Powers, DJ Butler, Dave Butler, and Mr. Christopher Rocchio. Um, so we've got some books by all these gentlemen, whether they wrote them or edited them in Christopher's case coming out. Uh, check the Bain.com schedule. So uh, thanks for coming on the Bain Free Radio Hour today, guys. Well, thank you, David. It's been a good time. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. And now we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. 
Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now, the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now, Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. Harrington House, City of Landing, Planet of Manticore, Manticore Binary System. Well, I guess that's everything. Honor Alexander Harrington stood in the quiet library. Rain pounded the skylight overhead. It was barely mid-afternoon, but the overcast day was dark and murky, and somehow it felt cold, despite Landing's warmth. She listened to the rain as she looked around her at all the familiar furnishings, the shelved books, the paintings, the subdued lighting. But she didn't really see any of it, and she looked like a stranger standing in someone else's house, unable to understand how she'd come there. If you're sure, her mother said. Allison stood beside Honor with Catherine in her arms. Raoul was in the nursery. He burst into sobs any time Honor was in the same room as him, clinging to her with desperate strength. She didn't know exactly how it worked, but there was no question that he was able to taste her emotions, whether or not he could truly feel anyone else's. She needed to cling to him as desperately as he needed to cling to her, but she couldn't. She couldn't inflict that on him, not now. Not when he was only a baby and no one could possibly explain it to him. And so she'd handed him as gently as she could to Lindsay Phillips and walked out of that nursery, heartbreaking at his sobbed, Mama! Mama! From behind her. Now he lay exhausted in his crib, and the Whitehaven tree cats huddled around him like guardian gargoyles, somehow blunting the worst of his sorrow and fear. Catherine was subdued, obviously aware something dreadful had happened, yet at least she'd been spared the terrible weight of someone else's grief, and Anna reached out to lay a gentle hand on the little girl's head. For a moment, something seemed alive behind the frozen flint of her eyes, but then she took her hand from Catherine's head, and whatever it had been, disappeared once again into the ice. I have to get back to the ship. We've got a lot to do, and I don't want to lose the time window. If you're sure, Allison repeated with a very different emphasis, and Honor looked at her. Honor had raised every barrier she could against the emotions of those about her. Her ability to feel what others felt wasn't something she could turn off or on. It simply was an inescapable part of who she'd become over the years. She had learned to adjust the volume, though, and she needed that now. Needed it because the loss and the pain, the fury and the sympathy pouring into her and Nimitz from everyone around them threatened to drag them under. That tide of emotion threatened to break her concentration, threatened to divert her from the task before her, and nothing could be permitted to do that. But her mother's very special anguish could not be escaped. The grief over the death of her beloved twin brother, the knowledge of how Jacques' death, especially like this, would hammer all of Alfred Harrington's wounds from the Iwata strike. The aching sense of loss for a son-in-law, and especially a daughter-in-law she'd come to love dearly. The knowledge that dozens of other friends, family, must have died aboard the Beowulf habitats with Jacques and Hamish. And fear, fear for her daughter. I'm sure, mother. There was no emotion in Honor's voice, but she managed a brief caricature of a smile. It vanished quickly, 
and her nostrils flared as she reached up to the silent grieving tree cat on her shoulder. Like I told Elizabeth, this has to end, and I'm going to end it once and for all. Allison shifted Catherine's weight so she could lay one hand on Honor's arm. I know you are, sweetheart. Her voice was calm, almost serene, despite the tears glittering on her lashes, and she shook her head. I know that, believe me, but you come back to me. Raoul and Catherine need you now more than ever, and your father and I, we'll always need you, Honor. So you come back to us. Mother, I'll be aboard the fleet flagship. She managed another fleeting smile. The Sollies don't have a thing that could touch her in a stand-up fight. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we just didn't make that clear enough. A very different expression replaced the smile, and her frozen eyes filled with a chill, flickering fire. That's one of the oversights I intend to set right. She felt Allison's concern spike higher, but she refused to allow it in, denied it access to the frozen helium of her purpose. She knew what Allison really meant, knew what her mother really wanted to say was, give me back my daughter and take away this stranger. Give me back the person who still knows how to love, how to care. Give me back my child and give back the mother my grandchildren need. But Honor didn't know if she could do that. She didn't know if anyone could do that. She reached out, touched her mother's cheek very gently, and her thumb brushed away one of Allison's tears. Take care of daddy and the babies, she said softly. Of course I will. I know. She leaned close, kissed Catherine's cheek, then leaned her forehead against her mother's for a long, still moment. And then Honor Alexander Harrington, Duchess and Steadholder Harrington, turned and walked out of that foyer, into the driving landing rain, down the steps to the waiting air car, without a backward glance. That was another installment in David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Tim Powers, DJ Butler, and Christopher Rocchio for taking the time to sit down and chat with me today. And thanks as always to your regular host, Tony Daniel, for letting me sit in this week. He wasn't able to be on himself because he started a side hustle selling these new organic snack foods called Soylent Green. He was telling me all about it and it sounds really interesting. They really focus on sound environmental policies, though he was fuzzy on what that exactly meant. And they're also really big into their workforce. I mean, they really care about the people who work for them. Or at least that's what their slogan made me think. The slogan is, at Soylent Green, our first ingredient is people. Wow, it's really inspiring to see a company take that stand in this day and age. Until next time, I'm David F. Shariarod, coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.